In the spring of 1877, a group of farmers from New York joined together to form the National Farmers Alliance. The group was organized by members of the Grange Movement, which advocated for the social and economic prosperity of American farmers. This is during the time when farmers started to feel like mainstream culture turned against them and de-emphasized their importance in society. The Industrial Revolution had at that point drastically changed the professions of the average American, refocusing the American economy on oil and steel. Railways were forged to connect the nation to these new industrial goods. Farmland started to become less abundant as cities popped up to accommodate these large industrial workforces. This organization, through its advocacy and a base of support feeling the economic squeeze of the time, is now credited as the origin of the populist era of American politics. It birthed a movement that received support through a disconnect that the farmers and other working people in America felt between themselves and the ruling class of the time. Eventually, this movement would change the political landscape of the time and become one of the most successful third parties in American history. It was a movement to gain more control over their country, for it to reflect their values and meet their needs. It was to create a utopia. Now, in order to see exactly what, what that would look like, I thought it would be a good idea to change the course of history in the ultimate what-if scenario. The genre of alternate history, in my estimation, is the ideal vehicle for this exercise. Although, unlike your average Harry Turtledove novel, this hopefully will be more academic and not just an excuse to write Southern Revisionism fan fiction. Um, so without further ado, Populist Utopia, an exercise in alternate history and or futility. Depends on how this goes. Why live alone? Have you no baby? Have you no Part of the reason why we fail to remember or effectively teach this era in American history is that most people don't know much about the circumstances of the time period. It's the year 1893. Grover Cleveland was elected for his second term in office and the first and only time a president has served two non-consecutive terms. Cleveland's political success, then failure, then success again, uh, was due to his anti-corruption reputation. Now, this is an important distinction to make, uh, amongst others, because most Americans' current interpretation of populism is so distorted. But I have to emphasize this. Populism is not just anti-elitism. You can both hate elite governance culture, corruption, sweetheart deals, embezzlement, etc., and still support fiscal policies that hurt the broader populace. And the um, economic panic of 1893 is a good instance in why that happens in Cleveland's case. Um, this is the category I would put Cleveland in. He was very conservative in regard to his fiscal policies. Um, this is not what populism in America was during the time. The populist movement of this time was defined by the populist, or more commonly referred to as the People's Party, and their rallying document, the Omaha Platform. 
It outlines the core values of strong labor unions, the nationalizing of railroads and railroad services, gold and silver-backed currency, limitations on land ownership, the federal labor protection and federal labor protections. Fiscal responsibility was vaguely mentioned, but only to the extent that those within the party urged that true populists are good stewards of taxpayer dollars, stuff like that. But out of all the policy proposals the People's Party put forward, by far their most radical proposal, and most difficult to implement, uh, is their reforms to the structure and the scope of the federal government. Fundamentally, American populism is about putting more power in the hands of the people, and the populace at the time felt like the present structure of government did not adequately respond to the wants and the needs of the broader populace. The movement saw the transformation of the governing system to be paramount in pursuit of the rest of their agenda. To better get an understanding of these reforms and what they serve to accomplish, we're going to have to look at the most important figure in the American populist movement next to Brian, and that is Sir Ignatius Donnelly. known for his time as a congressman and his populist agenda. Even though he had not held federal office since 1869, he was still very active in the populist movement, being a state legislator and organizer for the Minnesota Farmers Alliance. Donnelly was someone who considered himself an ally of farmers and saw the industrialization of the American economy to be an existential threat to their quality of life. He was also a prolific writer who wrote scathing stories about the need for change and how to accomplish it. A passage in his book, Caesar's Column, about a new form of government called the people, consists of three branches divided by class. The first branch, and the largest branch of government, known as the commons, is elected by the producers of the economy, farmers, mechanics, etc. The second branch, the smaller branch, um, is elected by the merchants and the manufacturers. And then the third branch, the smallest branch, um, would be elected by philosophers, journalists, artists, scientists, basically anyone you would find of the um, intellectual or quote-unquote creative class of society. To pass legislation through these bodies, you need either a majority in all three, two-thirds in two of the three, um, or three-quarters in the commons. Uh, the president would become elected by the legislative branch and be limited to one four-year term. The whole point of this is to create a more representative government through the legislative branch. The similarities between the people structure and the parliamentary structure are noticeable, but there are also stark differences. The fact that your profession will determine what branch of government you get to vote on and participate in is an unparalleled change. Also, the fact that each member must, quote-unquote, belong to their own class, as he says in, his, uh, in the passage, indicates to me that this government would likely be part-time. 
Donnelly viewed this adaptation as necessary for the continuation of a thriving American experience. He made the argument that the Louisiana Purchase and subsequent blossoming of an agrarian republic was the ideal structure for modern society, a place where individuals could have access to vast swaths of land and grow both their own wealth and the wealth of the nation in the process. The complexity and consolidation of capital in the late 19th century was due to industrialization and the rise of large monopolies. And Donnelly saw the working conditions and labor struggles of the time. He saw how this new industrialized economy would impact everyday people, and he wanted no part of it. Donnelly was the most influential populist leader in politics, while also being the biggest proponent of its most radical and bold reforms. I believe that in order to obtain a populist utopia that this project seeks to bring about, we have to see a Donnelly presidency. Part of the need for a Donnelly presidency lies in his would-be successor, though, Mr. William Jennings Bryan. timeline I am creating, Brian wins with the slimmest of margins, picking up the bare minimum of 224 electoral votes. To put that into perspective, he got 176 in real life. Um, to do this, he has to start by flipping the states of North Dakota, Minnesota, and Iowa. This happens not by sending Brian there to campaign, but Donnelly. The problem with Brian's actual 1896 campaign is that it more resembled a one-man band tour of the country than a more complex, spread-out campaign. The delegation of certain parts of the country to other high-profile politicians like Donnelly would help him focus on other places. Now, why would Donnelly campaign hard for Brian after hijacking his party's nomination? Well, because in this timeline, Tom Watson, the former Georgia representative and leader of the Southern Populace, is his running mate. See, in our timeline, Arthur Sewell was Brian's running mate on the Democratic ticket in an attempt to appease the Gold Democrats. The, par the Populist Party nominated Watson, hoping to get him on the ticket, but Brian rejected the idea. In this timeline, the Democratic Party sees the Gold Democrats have chosen to leave and reconvene to change the ticket. This ensures that the populist base is satisfied with the candidates. With those states now covered by the now onboard Donnelly, Brian can turn his attention to Kentucky and West Virginia next. West Virginia, in my estimation, is primed to flip. Uh, because of the contentious relations between coal workers and mine owners at that time. Going to miners, Brian can point out his past track record of supporting labor strikes and promise to never intervene on the side of mine owners in labor disputes. Kentucky elected its electors directly, and I am counting on that Brian, with more time to invest in the state, can easily pick up five more electoral votes. Finally, uh, to win the nomination, the Bryan campaign must flip Wisconsin and Michigan. And it, it is kind of funny how presidential elections always seem to come down to them, doesn't it? These states are where William James Bryan spends the most of his time campaigning in. 
As the metro areas of Milwaukee and Detroit are beginning to industrialize and experience railroad expansion, it is important that Bryan emphasizes his support for labor unions and his support for regulation of the rail companies. He assures voters that his regulations will not hurt business, but rather expand routes to increase job openings in the region. Now fast forward to November 3, 1896. People go out in droves to vote for Bryan. With the additional strategy and visibility to the right voters, Bryan wins one of the closest presidential elections in American history, with 224 electoral votes and 49%, that's right, just 49% of the popular vote. William Jennings Bryan heads to Washington with a narrow Democratic-slash-populist majority in the House and a five-seat minority in the Senate. Looking at the electoral map in 1896, it's not impossible to see the Democratic Party picking up a slight majority. The problem with that is that the Democratic caucus in the House is very diverse and likely would not be on board with the broader reforms that Bryan was proposing, such as breaking up monopolies and trusts. But in the meantime, uh, he tries to push through proposals that are needed for popular movements like the populist movement to obtain power. Bryan pushes for the amendment that would allow U.S. senators to be directly elected. Um, not only would this benefit the populist party, but this is also a more personal thing for Bryan due to him losing out on the Nebraska Senate seat because of the Republican-controlled state legislature at the time. Another proposed bill championed by Bryan were the inclusion of Arizona and New Mexico into the Union, which in our timeline doesn't happen until 1912. Uh, the Congress approves of this because of the increased revenue and legislation it would provide, but Bryan is particularly interested in it because of introducing two more populist-leaning states into the Union. Um, one major reform uh, that Bryan makes without the approval of Congress is the major promise of his campaign, bimetallism. Bryan was adamant on the campaign trail about implementing his 16 to 1 reform that would require 16 ounces of silver to be in circulation for every one ounce of gold. Bryan would implement this plan over the course of three years, with a 7 to 1 ratio implemented in the first year, a 12 to 1 in the second, and then to finally reach 16 to 1 in year three. This is done to avoid a sudden spike in inflation while front-loading the increases to provide immediate relief. Farmers and other, de other debt holders in America greatly appreciate the move, um, and urban professionals experience uh, little hardship from the move, or at least far less than they were anticipating. Um, Brian sees a boost in popularity, and uh, things in general are looking up. And then the Spanish-American War happens. As much of an anti-imperialist as William Jennings Bryan might have been, there was no way that the Spanish-American War was inevitable. The Yellow Pages were still going to claim the main on Spain, and we were still going to get involved. Um, in our timeline, populist party was initially in favor of the war, but once the government's imperial motives were revealed, they turned to oppose it. 
In this timeline, there's no need to worry about any Imperial motivations because the Bryan administration has a strong stance against Imperialism. The result is that the islands of Cuba and Puerto Rico are given greater autonomy and the assurance that the U.S. government would not meddle in their affairs. For now. I can't believe it's just a burning memory. Brian spends a lot of his time during his first term helping to build the populist coalition in Congress. Now, the Midwest is where Brian struggled to gain support from voters, but where he needed to win support from state parties is the South. At that time, the Democratic Party of the South was struggling to find its identity. The coalition was made up of wealthy Southern aristocrats who were more concerned about preserving segregation and uh, also white farmers were part of the coalition as well. The Populist Party had for years tried to attempt to unify white farmers and black farmers against the aristocracy, which through their stranglehold on power in state governments has enforced Jim Crow laws and suppressed farmer revolts. In our timeline, the only major inroads that the Populist Party made were in North Carolina, where they elected a Populist governor, who was actually on the Republican ticket. Um, now in our timeline, the election of Bryan, and even more critically, Watson as Vice President, is a signal to the Southern Populists that a takeover of the state parties is possible, and the Farmers' Alliances of the South execute a hostile takeover of Democratic politics. The aristocrats go and form a Dixiecrat-like party in the hopes of taking vote share away from the populist candidates, but the coalition of black and white farmers make up the plurality of voters in the South and prompt them to win many races. Um, Bryan easily wins re-election in 1900 with more coalition support than he did during his first run. Um, he finally had the supermajority in Congress in addition to that, and that was huge to advance in uh, kind of the larger parts of his platform. He pushes through uh, things like regulation of the railroads and appointment of federal judges that ruled favorably on populist policies during his second term. Nearing the end of the Bryan administration, many Americans were satisfied with the reforms that the populist movement made during the preceding eight years. But now we have finally arrived at the time when Ignatius Donnelly ascends to the presidency and finally implements the people. A utopia where one's class is represented equally in government and where social hierarchies of profession are torn down and rendered meaningless. A return to the agrarian republic. There's just um, one problem with that. Uh, Donnelly dies in 1901. Um, as much as this is an alternate history exercise, I do have to abide by some rules to preserve realism. Uh, one of those rules is not to prolong one's life for the sole reason of advancing the plot. So unfortunately, this turned out to be an exercise in futility after all. Um, the populist movement doesn't have a popular successor to carry on the mantle after Donnelly's passing, um, and the Bryan wing of the populist party um, became embattled uh, with whatever remained of Donnelly's core group of supporters. Vice President Watson 
couldn't appease both sides, and he ends up losing uh, the general election in 1904. The populist movement floundered and eventually dissolved, not due to a lack of support, but a lack of timing and ability to maintain the broad coalition that they had formed. And then, uh, just briefly to end here, is, um, just a little editor's note. I found going through this exercise, and we talk a lot about governing utopia and the importance of the governing aspect of that, th this project taught me that it's really hard even to get to the point where you can do the governing portion of it, because not only do these um, new ideas need to have um, popular support, but they also have to have an incredible amount of good circumstances and timing. And that just was not um, available to the populist movement of that time, or really any, any populist um, support that has existed throughout American history. Um, this period in time was the closest we ever came to this broad utopia where we can um, increase representation amongst the, the broader populace and create a more representative government um, and it just, the timing did not work out. So I, I think that, you know, exercising, um, like doing utopia exercises and uh, figuring out, you know, what these would look like are important, but in terms of them happening in real life, I think we can get close, but it's just really hard. Um, you know, a lot of good fortune has to go in one's favor if it's going to actually come 100% to the fruition of uh, the people who originally envisioned it. Uh, so thank you uh, for listening to my presentation. I will now stand for any questions you might have.